Hello all, and I welcome you to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a podcast that covers the less familiar and often obscure crimes from the shores of the UK, and I'm just back from a short week's break. I'm Paul, the host and creator of the show, you guys are you guys, the enthusiasts out there that make doing a show such as this so worthwhile and so rewarding to me, and I thank you very much for joining me. Just recently, it's your great support that helped get the show past the crazy milestone of more than half a million listens, which is absolutely phenomenal to me and it's difficult to get my head around. I'm very grateful, I'm very humbled, and stuff such as that, well, I'm totally motivated that this will continue, so thanks very much guys, you all absolutely rule, you really, really do. I hope that everybody's had a good week this one, and you're not too disappointed with the World Cup result. Perhaps next time, and perhaps next time, we may even see Wales there with a bit of luck, hopefully. At least there's still time to be enjoying the proper summer that we're getting now. Beers, barbecues, which we don't get a chance to very often, so it's always nice to make the most of it while we do get it. And this brings me very nicely onto a word from this week's show sponsor, Beer52. Now it's a crazy hot summer, we've officially gone past the heatwave moniker and summer is here. And what's better than having a beer in the summer? Well having a free case of craft beer, that's what's better. So how would you like one? Well because you're a listener to the show, the True Crime Enthusiast's friends at Beer52, that's Beer52.com, if you go to the website and use the code CRIME, you can claim yourself a free case. Let me tell you some more about them. Beer 52 is the world's most popular monthly craft beer club and what they do is seek out exclusive small batch craft beers from some of the world's greatest breweries. It's a whole world of craft beer one and if you like it then I'm sure you'll know what I'm talking about. And as seekers out of the world's most incredible and exclusive craft beers, each month focuses on a new theme or a new country. They've had California themes, Norway themes, Belgium and Amsterdam themes to name but a few. With these different themes, you get yourself not only 8 craft beers each month, but you can also tailor the box to your preferences. So if you're not a fan of dark beer, you don't have to have it. If you only like dark beer, boom, if you ask, that's what you get. Each one can be rated and reviewed on the Beer52 website, but that's not all you get. Because beers and snacks go together, you get yourself a snack in your box to have with your beers. You also get a 100-page magazine named Ferment, which contains tasting guides, articles from some of the best writers in the beer world, and all about the beers and how they're made. And if you sign up now, you'll get a chance to try a case of the best of British beers with the Summer Bangers selection. Beer52 were kind enough to send the True Crime Enthusiast a box of the Summer Bangers, and I've got to say I was impressed with what I've got. There's a right mixed bag in there, with things like Tangerine Dream, Road Trip, Moors, and each one is individually rated and reviewed in the Ferment magazine. So if you think that sounds good, as a listener to the show, you can try your first case for free. You just pay the postage costs of £2.95. And that's not bad for eight wonderful beers, ferment magazine and even a snack delivered with next day shipping. And there's no minimum commitment either. If it's not for you, then no worries. You can pause or cancel any time. Try the beers from your first case and see what you think. Just go to www.beer52, that's beer52.com forward slash crime to claim your free case today big thanks as well to my latest patreon supporters that's matthew manning vicky paula cassidy bishop victoria clasper ashley and susan parton thanks so much guys your support means the world and i hope that you all enjoy or you have maybe enjoyed by now the six bonus episodes that are currently available number seven is in the process of being written and it'll be out on the first of august It's promo time as ever now, and this week brings one of my absolute favourite podcasts, True Crime Sweden. Now, I love the Scandinavian crime ones, and I've previously promoed True Crime Finland and Nordic True Crime on the show, and now it's the turn of True Crime Sweden. If you aren't already familiar with the show, then advise that you go on right ahead and jump into it, because it's absolutely ace. It's available on all the usual podcast platforms and a link to the show will as ever be with my own show notes this week. But I shall hand you, or your ears rather, over to the host Pernilla right now. Hi, this is Pernilla from the True Crime Sweden podcast. If you thought Sweden was all about IKEA and Swedish meatballs, 
you are in for a big surprise. We do have our fair share of crimes in Sweden too, and I'm here to tell you all about them. I bring up all sorts of true crime cases, and by listening, you get to learn a little bit about how the legal system works in another country. For example, I did an episode about the case that created the Stockholm Syndrome. You've probably heard about the Stockholm Syndrome, but do you know the case behind it? Well, besides talking about true crime, I end each episode with a little fun fact about Sweden. Something that is really appreciated by my listeners. And maybe I should add that my podcast is of course in English. If you think this sounds interesting, give it a try by searching for True Crime Sweden on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast at. I hope to see you. Thanks very much there, Penilla. Go and show some love to True Crime Sweden. Guarantee you won't regret it. So this week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, there comes a tale with a slight difference from other weeks. This week, you'll meet the perpetrators, yeah, that's right, plural, from the off. And perhaps I'm splitting hairs a bit here, but this case doesn't actually take place within the UK. It has its genesis in the UK, certainly, but the crimes themselves take place in the Republic of Ireland. The case is a shocking and horrific one and concerns the actions of two individuals that the sheer horror of what they did dictates that they should be countlessly more infamous than they actually are. Please be advised that this episode contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is advised. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week we look back at the crimes of John Shaw and Jeffrey Evans. A native of Wigan in northwest England, by the age of 31, John Shaw had already accumulated no less than 26 convictions in British courts, three of these recorded against him before he was even 14 years old. The majority of the convictions he had were for theft and larceny, a source of income that Shaw seemed to prefer to honest gain. His only periods of lawful employment were tough physical jobs working on various building sites as a labourer, on a period that he spent working as a coal miner. He decided that hard, honest work wasn't for him, however, and he preferred to make a living from petty crime and housebreaking. Now, 26 convictions makes you a habitual, hardened criminal, of course, but Shaw's record also showed that he was a sexual deviant. In the late 1960s, he was convicted at Wigan Crown Court of indecently assaulting a young boy and in 1971 he'd received a seven and a half year prison sentence at Liverpool Crown Court for an attempted rape. It was while serving the latter sentence that he met another like-minded ne'er-do-well, Geoffrey Evans. Being from around the same area, the two hit it off and became firm friends almost immediately. Evans was two years older than Shaw, but like Shaw he'd been married but was now separated from his wife and children. He'd come from the area of Shakerley, which is also near Wigan, and the extra two years in age allowed Evans to rack up more convictions than Shaw, having some 36 in total. Most of these were for theft and robbery, and it was while serving a sentence for one of these that John Shaw came into his life. Now cases do happen where two like-minded evil people meet and they spark off each other. In the annals of British crimes, the names Fred and Rose West need no introduction, of course, and there's Duffy and Mulcahy, just to name two examples. Shaw and Evans, somewhere down the line, decided that theirs was a partnership worth keeping on, and they stayed in touch even after release. This release came in 1974, and they wasted no time in disturbing the rest that society had earned from them. Shortly after their release, they were both once again in trouble, this time being actively sought in connection with a series of rapes against young women, one of them being the 16-year-old daughter of a high-ranking officer in the Greater Manchester Police. Now following this, it got far too hot for the both of them in the UK, and it was then that they decided to flee to Ireland. Soon after their arrival in Ireland, 
The pair came to the attention of the Garda after they were arrested for housebreakings in the Cork and County Tipperary areas, supporting themselves after fleeing here by using their favoured method of theft. On the 5th of February 1975, both appeared at Cork Circuit Court on no less than 16 counts of burglary. The pair's previous substantial convictions were read out before the shocked court, so it would seem quite surprising when the judge, after listening to this, said that he would find each one guilty on one count of burglary apiece and take the other 15 into account. They were sentenced to two years imprisonment each and sent to Cork Jail before later being transferred to Dublin's Mountjoy Prison, which has the largest prison population in Ireland, for a bit of trivia. Shaw served precisely 18 months of this sentence here, whilst Evans was held for a further three weeks before emerging back onto the streets on the 26th of August 1976. Both were later to remark how they'd found the conditions in the Joy, as it's commonly known, much more favourable and those are the countless British prisons that they'd spent time in. After release, they had arranged to stay with another friend of theirs, an Englishman that they'd met in prison and befriended named Clifford Outram, who lived in the parish of Fethard in County Tipperary. While Shaw had gone straight there when he was freed, Evans arrived there by train on the day of his release after storing most of his belongings in a locker in Dublin's Houston station. The partners in crime were now both free, and reunited to put into action a chilling and perverse goal that they'd set each other whilst they were both in prison. Shaw and Evans had set themselves the aim of the rape and murder of one woman a week, and they were eager to get this evil tally off the ground. So just two days after Evans was released, both men left Outram's house in the morning and went into Fethard, where they borrowed a car belonging to a local man, a light-coloured Austin A40 model. They drove this car to Dublin, where they collected Evans's belongings from Houston train station, and then they went for a few drinks and some food in a pub near to Dublin's Four Courts. Now, coincidentally, this is an area that was a regular haunt of Michael Bambrick, a killer that we met earlier on in the series in the Ronan's Park Murders episode. That evening, Shaw and Evans set off in the direction of County Wicklow and stopped at a pub named Jack White's. This is a big pub between Wicklow Town and Arklow, and it's very near to a site named Britus Bay, which is a popular beach and tourist resort situated on the Irish Sea coast. After several hours spent drinking at Jack White's pub, the pair decided that they would go and burgle some of the many caravans situated down towards Britter's Bay as funds were running low. But this wasn't all that they had in mind, because they wanted to pick up a girl. In a manoeuvre that the pair had used before in England, Shaw got out of the car a distance down the road, so as to make the offer of a lift from Evans seem less menacing. Sickening to think of the predatory nature of a mindset such as that, isn't it? In his own words, reproduced here, Shaw later claimed, We were talking about girls and Geoffrey said he was going to pick up a bird and have it off with her. He said he wanted a small bird. Geoffrey was driving and we drove around the roads for a while looking for a bird. We saw one standing at a corner. Jeff stopped and asked her if she wanted a lift. I had got out of the car and walked up the road at the time. This girl told Jeff that she was waiting for someone and he picked me up again. The plan scuppered, Shaw and Evans drove on. Lucky, lucky woman. The next woman, sadly, was not so lucky. Elizabeth Plunkett, like so many that hot August of 1976, had planned to catch some sunshine and spend the weekend with five of her friends in a caravan in Staunton's caravan site in Britus Bay that was owned by one of the friends. Also accompanying her was her boyfriend Damien Bush and his sister and Elizabeth's best friend Mella Bush, who worked with Elizabeth as a currency cashier in a bank in Dublin where the group lived. Elizabeth and Mella had only a few weeks before returned from the holiday trip of a lifetime for them, visiting Saint-Tropez in France, and were both keen to take advantage of the hot weather back home to top up the fading tans that they'd gained on holiday. The widely publicised synonymous photograph of Elizabeth shows a happy, attractive woman posing on the Saint-Tropez beach on this holiday. 
That Saturday, the 28th of August, 1976, Elizabeth had no doubt expected to do the same thing. When the group arrived at the caravan, in separate cars, however, they discovered that the key to the caravan had been forgotten. Arrangements were made to have a spare key driven there, although this would take about an hour, so the group went to pass the time in nearby McDaniel's pub while they awaited the key arriving. Unfortunately, as so often, I'm sure we all know, happens when alcohol is involved, an innocent discussion between Damien and another member of the group involving the sale of a car became quite heated. Now this argument particularly aggrieved Elizabeth who shouted at one point, we're here to enjoy the weekend, to hell with a car till Monday. The argument continued though, it went on for more than an hour, despite Elizabeth's constant warnings that she'd go home if it didn't stop, and finally by about 11pm she'd absolutely had enough. She got up from the corner table of the pub, which was still crowded with more than 800 holidaymakers, and stormed out. Two other people, who'd been in the pub for some time, left just shortly after her. They were John Shaw and Geoffrey Evans. Shaw and Evans saw Elizabeth walking down the dark road, and using the same tactic that they'd unsuccessfully used earlier, first drove a distance past her. Shaw got out of the vehicle some distance down the road, and Evans turned the car around and made the offer of a lift to Elizabeth, which regrettably she accepted. He asked her where she was going to, and when she said Dublin, bingo. That happened to be the exact same place that Evans said he was going to as well. Once she was in the car, Evans drove on and shortly afterwards he picked up Shaw again, and at first the three chatted. Elizabeth no doubt upset and angry still about the argument that had occurred and glad to vent off some steam about it and Shaw and Evans glad to lull her into a false sense of security. It was only a short distance back towards Dublin from British Bay close to the entrance to Castletime and Woods that they let the facade slip. Stopping the car, both men suddenly attacked Elizabeth. She was struck across the face and dragged from the front seat and although the physically fit young woman who took judo lessons and was a regular swimmer, put up a fantastic struggle, she was ultimately no match for the physically strong pair. The various prison terms that they'd served, plus their lawful careers as builders, labourers and coal miners had ensured this. Elizabeth was overpowered, had tissue paper stuffed into her mouth to stifle any screams, and her hands were tied behind her back. She was then beaten severely by both men and was dragged semi-conscious over to a wire fence, and once over this, deep into Castle Time and Woods. Now the full extent of the true horror that Elizabeth was subjected to can only be imagined really. Both Shaw and Evans gave accounts in their subsequent confessions, but each was a highly sanitised version of events, and each of the pair tried to apportion the blame onto the other. What can be determined is as follows. After dragging Elizabeth a considerable distance into the dark wood, the pair came across an area near to an old sandpit, far enough away from the road for any possible disturbance. The following contains extracts from Evans's later confession, and it makes for disturbing and graphic listening. He claimed, We pulled her into the trees and she was saying, Let me go. We took off her light blue slacks, her panties, and John had intercourse with her. He forced himself on her as she didn't want to and I walked away whilst John was doing this. After about quarter of an hour I came back, the girl was lying on the ground and John was sitting beside her. Now I find this an absolutely disgusting statement. It properly turns my stomach to imagine not only someone doing such a thing, but even saying it or reading it. I reproduced disturbing descriptions such as these not to sensationalise or to show disrespect to anyone, but to bring home the full horror of what this pair did. It's worth of note Evans mentioning that he walked away whilst this happened, which I believe to be a downright lie and a very strange thing to say anyway, considering what came next. For by now it was Evans' turn, and he took over and savagely raped Elizabeth repeatedly. By all accounts, Evans was the leader and the more calculating of the pair, and he now sent Shaw off to hide the car that they were using, conscious that Elizabeth's friends and boyfriend could be out searching for her, 
and that the car may be spotted and attract attention to them. Shaw obeyed, and leaving Evans with Elizabeth, he returned to the car and parked it up some distance away in a pub car park on the main Dublin road. Doing this and walking back to the site took Shaw a couple of hours to do, and when he returned, Elizabeth was again savagely raped by both of them. This went on in a horrifying cycle throughout the night. It wasn't even dispelled by torrential downpours of rain throughout the night. And by first light, Evans told Shaw to kill Elizabeth Plunkett while he went and fetched the car. Shaw takes up the horrific story now. Jeff said he would go back for the car and he told me to kill her whilst he was away. He said to me, remember what happened in England? Jeff went off for the car and I had intercourse with the girl again. When Jeff came back he said, why haven't you killed her? Remember what happened in England? I took a nylon shirt out of one of the cases, put the sleeve around her neck and choked her. Remember what happened in England is most likely a reference to the three rapes that the pair were wanted for in the UK. It was likely that they decided never to leave a victim alive ever again to identify them. You can only hope that Elizabeth was at least unconscious and she didn't hear them saying that. If she had, the terror that she must have felt on top of the horrific ordeal, well, you can't even begin to imagine it, can you? Absolutely appalling. What an evil, evil act. By first light, the killers then set out thinking how to cover their tracks as best they could, and this meant disposing of Elizabeth's body. As the murder site was within walking distance of the coast, they decided to dump Elizabeth's body into the Irish Sea the following night. Leaving the body there, Shaw and Evans then decided to go out and commit a number of burglaries at a caravan site near to British Bay, and they stole a number of items from these, pretty much wherever they could carry by hand. They took a portable television set, a record player and records, clothing and small amounts of cash, and also a tent and two sleeping bags. Loading the hall into the car, they decided to now hide out and lay low for the rest of the day. As the pair were doing this, Elizabeth's concerned family and friends were out frantically searching for her. The group that she'd been with had actually been searching for her throughout the night. It transpired that they'd left McDaniel's pub within 10 minutes of her storming out. They'd looked for her around the crowded pub car park, but to no avail, and there was no sign of her back at the caravan. Damien had even driven back to Elizabeth's parents' house in the Dublin district of Rings End to check if she'd made it back there, which of course she hadn't. By the following morning, as the killers were out committing thefts from caravans, both the Plunkett and Bush families had converged back to the British Bay area and were making a determined and thorough search amongst the many sprawling sand dunes that skirt the picturesque holiday area. It was only a few hours later, when this search proved fruitless, that Elizabeth was reported to Garda as a missing person. Just after midnight on the morning of Monday the 30th of August, Shaw and Evans returned to where they'd left Elizabeth's body and placed it into the boot of the car. They then drove back to one of the neighbouring caravan parks of British Bay, as when they were out burgling that morning, they'd happened to notice four rowing boats on the shore nearby. Under cover of darkness, they broke into a tool shed near to this caravan park and stole a lawnmower, which they carried down to the boats on the shore. Choosing a boat named the Skipper, Shaw smashed the padlock off it that was securing it and pushed the small vessel afloat. Evans then pulled down a nearby clothesline and placed the length of rope into his pocket. Both men then returned to the car and between them removed Elizabeth's body from the boot and carried it down to the boat. They then placed her and the lawnmower into the boat and rowed out as far as they possibly could. Evans then used the clothesline to tie the lawnmower around Elizabeth's waist and both men then heaved her body overboard. They watched her body sink, weighted down by the stolen lawnmower, before returning to the coast about two miles further south from where they'd stolen the rowing boat from. They abandoned the boat and hid for the remainder of the night. They'd callously even denied the poor girl any dignity in death. 
leaving her in a watery grave where they thought that she'd never possibly be found. Later that day, the two then decided to dispose of the clothing that Elizabeth had been wearing, which were light blue trousers and a navy and white t-shirt bearing the logo Saint-Tropez, which was a sad reminder of the trip of a lifetime that Elizabeth had enjoyed just a few weeks before, not knowing it was to be the last trip that she'd ever make. Her other belongings, such as her purse, had been left behind with her friends at the pub when she'd stormed out following the argument on the Saturday evening. Shaw and Evans decided to light a bonfire in a darkened corner of the McDaniels caravan site nearby to British Bay and to burn this clothing, so they did so, and suddenly the guarder arrived. They'd received reports of two men trespassing on the caravan site, and Detective Garda Joseph Nealon arrived as a response to the report. He found two men, both in their early thirties, one short and fair-haired, and the other taller and dark-haired with a thick black beard, stood by a fire in the corner of the park. Questioned by Detective Garda Nealon, Evans gave their names as John and Geoffrey Murphy, and claimed that they were there on holidays. When asked to explain the fire and why they were burning clothing on it, Evans claimed that they were working on the timber in the forest at Burnskill in County Tipperary and they'd got wet in the previous day's heavy rain. They gave the officer a false name and telephone number and after weighing up the suspicious pair, despite their suspicious activity, and it does sound dodgy that doesn't it, Detective Nealon opted not to pursue the matter any further. He told them that it was best that they moved on and he left it at that. He left and they left. Back at British Bay, the search for Elizabeth continued, and after a full-scale search by a concerned family, friends and holidaymakers who'd volunteered to assist in the search, a missing persons inquiry began. As more and more days passed and concern grew, the search area was widened to encompass other nearby areas, including the 40-acre Castleteeman Wood. It was here, a full week after Elizabeth had last been seen, that a discovery was found that could only hint at her fate. A civilian volunteer searcher discovered a woman's blue sandal close to the old sandpit area. It was sadly identified by her family as belonging to Elizabeth. It was one of a pair that she'd bought while she was on holiday in Saint-Tropez. This discovery changed the focus of the investigation from a missing persons inquiry to a suspected murder, and the area was cordoned off as a crime scene. When the overgrown vegetation was cleared and a fingertip search of the immediate area carried out, another discovery was found. A small piece of cardboard with a hole bored in it and white cord looped through to make form a makeshift label was found and on it written in pen it bore the name Geoffrey Murphy. A check of this name brought to light the encounter with the two suspicious men that had been reported loitering on the nearby campsite and a description of them was gleaned from Detective Garda Nealon. This description and the name were flashed to Garda stations all across the country, and all police were alerted to be on the lookout for two men matching the descriptions and giving the names of John and Geoffrey Murphy. But this was a week later by now. What had Shaw and Evans been doing? Shaw and Evans had followed their close brush with the law by returning to Fethard, where they returned the borrowed Austin A30 to the local man and took use of another car, one that Clifford Outram had just bought. He once again put the pair up for the evening, and the next morning they set off, where they began to commit an onslaught of burglary all across Southern Ireland. They targeted homes and pubs in Mitchellstown, Carrick-on-Swear, Clonmull and Cork, and it was whilst in Cork that they began to prepare for their next crime. They stole the registration number plates from an abandoned Ford Corsair car on Cork's Bandon Road and now they could attach them to whatever vehicle they were using and it was a further step, so they thought, in ensuring that their next killing could not be connected with them in any way. They continued their crime spree, netting a substantial sum of money in the process and by Friday the 10th of September they returned to Outram's house. He drove the pair to Limerick where they hitched first to Athlone and then on to Galway. 
It was on the outskirts of Galway that the pair decided that they needed a base for their operations and they bought a mobile home at the Barn House caravan site for £380. The crime spree now moved over to the west coast of Ireland as premises in Spiddle, Linane and Cliveden were all targeted in the next few days. All of the stolen property from these burglaries was transported back to the caravan and it was also in Cliveden that the pair stole a green Ford Cortina car from outside a garage using a Ford car master key that Evans had, ever the prepared criminal. They kitted this Cortina out with tyres, again stolen from a vehicle in Linane, and they replaced the Cortina number plates with the ones that they'd stolen from the vehicle in Cork. They then returned to County Cork, and in a wood just outside Mitchellstown, they hand-painted the Cortina black. They'd bought black paint and brushes specifically to do the job, but it was a poorly done effort, and even the most cursory of glances revealed the brush strokes. That evening, the pair went out and burgled a caravan nearby, also stealing the roof rack off a saloon car parked in one of the caravan bays. Figuring it would store perfectly their already stolen tent and other items, Evans and Shaw now had just one last thing left to do. At the county council offices in Clonmel, they applied for and were given provisional driving licences in the names of Roy Hall and David Ball using Outram's address. They now had false identities and their horrific plan was now complete. It was time for them to kill again. Wednesday the 22nd of September 1976 Strangers were always noticed in the village of Marm in County Galway. It's a small village in rural Ireland and the type of place where everybody knows everybody's business. The two men, and more specifically, the vehicle that the Marm petrol station owner saw that evening, definitely stood out. His curiosity was aroused when the car pulled up a Ford Cortina with the Dublin registration and he noticed that it had been hand-painted black, not sprayed, hand-painted, and very, very poorly at that. The passenger got out of the vehicle and asked the owner for three pounds worth of petrol, and it was further memorable because he was English. The driver remained in the driver's seat studying a road map, and although the owner tried to engage the passenger in conversation, he was only ever met with brief replies. The passenger paid in £3 notes and the occupants then drove off in the direction of Linane. Now thinking there was something just a bit off about these two, the owner wrote down the registration number of the vehicle that he'd memorised, SZH562, and once they departed, he checked the daily newspaper in which he'd just read a report about two Englishmen who were wanted in connection with the disappearance of Elizabeth Plunkett. Now the report didn't give a real good clear physical description, but it did give the estimated ages of the two men, which fitted the occupants of the Ford Cortina. The petrol station owner debated whether or not to alert the guarder in Marm or further along in Linane, but he opted against doing so because he thought it would look silly. In the morning he had a change of mind about this, and he alerted both to his suspicions, and the guarder were absolutely all over it. It was exactly the kind of information that they'd been waiting for. They now had a registration number and a description of a vehicle to go with the descriptions of the two men that had been flashed to every Garda station in the country. If the owner had perhaps acted on his suspicions there and then, it may just have been in time to stop the next abominable act that Shaw and Evans were about to commit. 24-year-old Mary Duffy had left school at age 14, and ever since she'd worked constantly. First she'd been employed as a housekeeper for a local doctor, then in the kitchens of a number of local hotels, before finding a job as an assistant at Stewart's shop in Castlebar in County Mayo. Mary also worked four nights a week at the coffee shop cafe on Castlebar's Ellison Square, where she worked each evening until 11pm. Now that evening in question, the 25th of September, was one such night, and when she'd finished, Mary was trying unsuccessfully to gain a lift home to the farm that she lived on, with her 71-year-old father John 
and his 64-year-old mother, Mary. She'd felt ill all day, complaining of a persistent sore throat, for which she'd taken four doses of medication for throughout the day, and backache caused by the spinal problem that she had consistent and continuous medical treatment for. She tried calling the garage in the town where her brother Michael worked to see if he could pick her up to take her home, but the owner of the garage told her that Michael was out on a call, but was expected back shortly. Mary asked him to relate the message to Michael that she was going to start walking home and to ask him to collect her on nearby Briaffy Road on her way home. Mary was sadly to never make it that far. Shaw and Evans had driven into Castlebar and late that evening it was easy for them to spot the lone young woman at the telephone kiosk. When she hung up and began walking, Shaw told Evans to stop the car. He got out and Evans drove further up the road and parked the Ford Cortina just out of sight. Shaw then began closely following Mary and at a distance of about 10 yards as she was drawing level to the car, he ran at her and dragged her to the ground. Mary tried to fend him off but as with Elizabeth she sadly proved no match for Shaw. After shouting obscenities at her, and striking her several times in the face, so hard that some of Mary's dental fillings and a dental plate were actually knocked out and smashed. She was then bundled into the back of the Ford Cortina, which then sped off. This abduction had occurred in what was a reasonably built-up area, with houses either side of the street, and although Mary had screamed, most residents thought that it was just kids larking about. One resident who had looked through the window in response to the screams only saw a dark-coloured car speed off in the direction of Galway. Certainly nobody thought to contact the Garda. In the back of the car, Mary was being held with her head clamped between Shaw's knees and she was in severe pain. She was bleeding quite profusely from the wounds to her mouth where Shaw had knocked out her teeth and plate, and while she was incapacitated like this, Shaw tied her hands securely behind her back, and the young woman, who was just five feet four inches tall and seven stone in weight, was then horrifically beaten by Shaw, and when she was nearly unconscious, she was stripped, and then she was brutally raped. This nightmare journey continued for 65 miles, as Shaw and Evans took it in turns to assault Mary, stopping the car several times and exchanging driving duties with each other. Several times the vehicle nearly came off the road because of the speed and the erratic driving of each. They were both distracted and both excited by what was happening in the back of the car. Now I have to take a minute here, guys. I mean, what part of hell do monsters such as this come from? Why on earth does anybody commit such atrocities at this? I just cannot get my head round it in the slightest. Shaw was later to give a sanitised version of this horror in his confession. Again note how he places the onus on Evans. We headed for some place near Clifton. While Jeff drove the car along the road, I had intercourse with a girl. I took off her pants and her jacket. Somewhere along the road, I started to drive and Jeff got into the back of the car with her. She didn't scream, but she said, don't do me any harm. We got to a forest and stopped. We pulled her out of the car, and Jeff pulled off her clothes. We both then had intercourse with her. Finally, in the early hours, the car arrived at the killer's chosen destination, an old deserted railway station, a ball and a hinch, up in the direction of Clifton, this was a place that Shaw and Evans had carefully chosen. It was miles away from the scene of the abduction. It was extremely remote and abandoned, and they were even less likely to be disturbed here than they had been with Elizabeth. Dragging Mary out of the car, they frog-marched her to a clearing near the Ballinhinch River that they'd again carefully chosen. It was a clearing hidden from the river by ferns and dense scrubland, so there was no risk of being spotted even by any fishermen. Showing no mercy in the slightest, the pair then tied Mary to a tree nearby and put up the tent that they'd stolen. Evans then decided that this horror would continue for at least another day. 
and leaving Mary with Shaw, he set off in the car to head back to their caravan in the Barnhouse campsite for supplies, where he arrived back at, at about 5am. Evans spent the rest of the morning here, burning Mary's clothing and a handbag which had been left in the car. At about noon he went to the shops in Barna village to get food and supplies for the pit, and then he visited a pub in Spiddle to watch the evening news on television. He was conscious by now that Garda may be close on their trail, as Mary may have been reported as missing by that time, so he couldn't believe his luck when no mention of the missing girl was made on the evening news. With that giving him an added air of confidence, Evans set off back to the campsite in Balnahinch and back to shore in their captive. It was turning dark by the time he arrived back at the site, and when he got there, Shaw was now inside the tent with Mary. Now it can only be surmised as to the full extent of horrors that the poor young woman had been put through that day, but she showed further signs of suffering terribly. Alongside her teeth being knocked out, she now had several deep scratches and cuts across her body, and a terrible deep gash over her left eye. Evans gave the girl a cheese sandwich and some barley water, but she was too badly injured to even eat it. Or unsurprisingly, given the horrors that she'd just been put through, she didn't actually have an appetite for any food. That is just as as likely really, isn't it? Evans now took over the horrific abuse of Mary, while Shaw went drinking in nearby Roundstone. When Shaw returned some hours later, the pair decided to murder Mary Duffy, and it fell to Shaw to again do the actual killing. In his later statement he described Mary's murder, but again somewhat sanitised. Jeff gave her some pills to take. He gave her five or six pills. She got a bit dozy after she took them. Jeff said they were sleeping pills and that he would take her home. I got a cushion out of the car and put it over her head and put my hands around her neck and killed her. We threw her into the back of the car with her clothes. Jeff said he'd picked a spot to dump her. The spot that Evans had chosen was Luinar, a large lake in the shadow of Twelve Pins Mountains, about nine miles from where they were camped. It's three and a half miles long and it covers 2,000 acres, being up to 75 feet deep in parts. And on the eastern shore of it, there's a boathouse with a small pier, as it's a popular lake for sailing and diving. With the site chosen, the pair drove up to here in the early hours of the 24th of September. Arriving at the boathouse, Evans's statement was later to describe what happened. We carried her down the steps and put her alongside a boat. I went over to the boathouse and smashed a window, got in and took two oars and took them back to the boat which was tied. We put her in the middle of the boat and I went back into the boathouse to get some weights. The only thing I could find was a big sledgehammer. I went to the car and took a concrete block and took that back to the boat and John tied it around her legs with rope from the car. I tied the sledgehammer around her waist. John said that we wanted more weight, so I got an old anchor and a brick. I put some rope around her body with a spare piece to attach the small brick to, but the brick kept falling off. I couldn't manage it. John attached the anchor to her, I think. We rode out then, it was hard to see, and we hit a marker boy, a rock sticking up with a marker on it. John told me to lift the body over the side of the boat but I weren't able, so he done it and I kept the other side of the boat to balance it. We rowed back into shore and finished up a good distance from the boathouse. We walked along the road to the car, I walked down with John and collected the clothes and put them all on the floor at the front passenger seat. I then drove down back the road we came towards the railway station. The pair then returned to the clearing packed up the tent and sleeping bags and burned the remainder of Mary's clothing, plus Shaw's own jumper which was saturated with blood by then in a corner of the campsite. They then had to return to Luinar to return the boat before it was noticed missing, so they set off back for there, stopping several times on the way to dispose of items such as the sleeping bags which they chucked into a river and Mary's rings which were thrown into a nearby wood. They returned the boat to its original position, placed the oars back in the boathouse, and then drove back to their caravan at Barna. Confident that no one would ever realise what had happened to Mary Duffy, or where she was. Now Mary had been reported as a missing person to Garda by this time, 
but due to unfortunate events this hadn't happened until nearly a full 24 hours after she'd been abducted by Shaw and Evans. When she didn't arrive home that Wednesday evening it was presumed that she'd stayed out in town and gone straight to work on the Thursday. However unbeknownst to her family Thursday was Mary's day off from work and so nobody at Stuart's shop was expecting her in. Therefore, a full vital day was lost by the time that her younger sister Christina reported her as missing when she didn't come home on the Thursday evening. That morning of the 24th, as Shaw and Evans were sleeping after their busy night, police were carrying out local inquiries to discover what had happened to Mary. It was only then that they discovered the screams that had been heard when she'd been abducted and the sighting of the dark car speeding off. Garda investigating the disappearance of Elizabeth Plunkett were notified about Mary's disappearance and putting this together with the report from the petrol station owner about the distinctive car and the two Englishmen he'd encountered they were sure that these two men were now responsible for the disappearance of yet another young woman. What sealed it beyond doubt was the discovery of pieces of Mary's denture plate and her fillings from the scene of her abduction later that day they were now absolutely certain that she'd come to harm. Both investigations were linked and Garda in the west of the country were placed on high alert for the two men. By the time the investigations had been linked, Shaw and Evans were in the city of Galway. Bit of trivia for you, Galway will be the European capital of culture in 2020. And of course, by now, the pair were driving around looking for yet another woman to abduct. Shaw identified several possible opportunistic targets, but Evans was insistent that he wanted what he described as a small bird. Around a dozen women were rejected in this way, luckily, and by Sunday the 26th of September, they still hadn't selected a suitable target. So that evening, they went drinking in the Ocean Wave Hotel in the Salt Hill area of Galway. At 11.15pm that evening, Garda Jim Boland and PJ Cocoran were on patrol in the area when they spotted the black Cortina that had been flagged as high priority to all Garda stations, registration number SZH562, parked on the side of the street near the Ocean Wave Hotel. Closer inspection revealed it to be the same car. The poorly hand-painted paint job was clearly visible, even at night. Garda Boland drove the squad car out of sight up a nearby dark laneway, but still within vision of the car, and requested immediate reinforcements, whilst Garda Cochran made it on foot back to Salt Hill Station to grab assistance. He'd only been gone for mere minutes when Garda Boland, who was waiting in the squad car, saw two men leaving the Ocean Wave Hotel and approach the vehicle. They got in and he heard the vehicle start up and saw the lights go on. He immediately started his patrol car and shot out of the lane, blocking the path of the Cortina. Rushing out of the vehicle, he ran up to the driver's door and pulled out the driver who turned out to be Geoffrey Evans, whilst his colleagues arrived just in time and arrested John Shaw before he could get away. Neither man put up much resistance. It's funny really how this pair, who were so triple-hard when they could beat, rape and strangle two young women, they didn't much fancy the chances against four coppers. Funny thing that, eh? The arrest came just proper in the nick of time, because Shaw and Evans had just identified their next target a young woman who they'd seen and followed out of the hotel. They were just mere seconds away from abducting her. A third killing had just been prevented. Shaw and Evans were taken to Salt Hill Station and later transferred to Galway, whilst news of their arrest was immediately conveyed to Garda headquarters in Dublin, who dispatched murder squad detectives to Galway immediately. The following morning, Shaw awoke in his cell and asked to be taken to the toilet, claiming that the one in his cell was broken and had no toilet paper. Two guards escorted him to a different toilet outside the cell, and whilst one stood outside the door, another one took up vantage point at a window nearby that had a view of the yard. Almost immediately, he noticed Shaw wriggle out through the toilet window and make a dash for the yard door. The alarm was raised, and several Garda set off in pursuit after Shaw. 
who was recaptured about 200 yards away on St. Brendan's Terrace. This time he put up a violent struggle, but was ultimately overpowered and dragged back to his cell. The interrogation of Shaw and Evans took place separately, and teams of detectives took turns trying to get them to tell where Mary Duffy was, as there was a hope, albeit a faint one, that she was still alive and was being held somewhere. Both men did speak freely to the guarder, but both strongly denied being involved in the abduction of Mary or Elizabeth. They were questioned all day, but continued to maintain this story. That night, one of the murder squad detectives, Detective Guarder Jerry O'Carroll, decided that it was worth questioning Shaw again using a different tactic. He recalled that during the interviews that afternoon, Shaw had revealed that he was a Catholic, like himself, and O'Carroll thought that he may be able to use this to his advantage. Taking Shaw to the station billiard room at about 4am, he reminded Shaw of the terrible horrific trauma that the families of both Elizabeth and Mary were going through, and he told him that it was time for him to come clean. O'Carroll then began reciting the rosary, and he urged Shaw to join him. Something in this was like a floodgate, for Shaw suddenly snapped and said, God help me, the devil made me do it. Keep him away from me. Almost immediately after this statement, he began giving O'Carroll details of what had happened to Mary Duffy and Elizabeth Plunkett. It took four hours to complete his handwritten statement, transcribed by an officer as Shaw dictated, and extracts from which have been reproduced throughout the episode. Armed with Shaw's confession, the following morning detectives now again confronted Evans to question him and when he again denied any involvement in either crime, they presented him with Shaw's written and signed confession. When he was faced with this, he too caved in and confessed his involvement. Later that day, the two killers, both handcuffed and both hooded, were escorted by Garda on a tour of the various places involved with their rampage. First they went to Luinar, where they pointed out roughly the spot where they dumped Mary's body. They showed where they disposed of Mary's rings, which were discovered during a later Garda search, and the spot where they dumped the tent and sleeping bags, which were also later recovered. They then directed Garda to the spot where they'd abused at length Mary Duffy, and then they went on to Britus Bay, where they pointed out exactly where Elizabeth Plunkett had been abused and killed and her body dumped. Their confession was enough to bring murder charges to both John Shaw and Geoffrey Evans, and they were remanded in custody to await trial. Whilst on their way to Mountjoy Prison, their home of just a few weeks previously, Shaw is alleged to have leaned over to guard the detective Jerry O'Carroll, who was escorting him, and said, I'm glad you caught me. We were going to do one woman a week. Meanwhile, that very same day, a body was washed up on the south Wexford coast of Ireland at Lacken in Dumcormac. This spot is 65 miles away from Britus Bay, and two days later, it was sadly identified as being that of the body of Elizabeth Plunkett. It was 32 days since she'd been taken. A mass-intensive search by divers that lasted nearly two weeks was also just starting at Luinar for Mary Duffy's body, and in the episode show notes, there's links to a documentary that I used for research purposes whilst writing the episode that contains archive footage of this search. It involved not only Garda divers, but Navy and civilian volunteer divers who also gave their assistance, and a systematic search of the loo was carried out. One of these volunteers, Thomas Mulveen, now takes up the story, at about 2pm on the 10th of October, I was a member of a section of divers diving on the far side of the lake and close to the shore on the far side. We were in the water for about 12 to 15 minutes when I noticed a body of a female lying on the bottom. The body was in between rocks in a type of cave, lying face downwards in 25 feet of water. When I observed the body, I alerted the other divers in my section. They came over to where I was, and I got a weight belt, and one of the divers marked where the body was with a boy and a rope. When the silt settled around the body, I checked the body with my torch and noticed that it was in a crouched position. There was an anchor tied underneath her chin, and it was tied with ropes to her arms. 
They also noticed a concrete cavity block tied between her legs in the area between her ankles and her knees, and a wooden handle between her legs, which I presumed to be a sledgehammer. After 18 days, Mary had been found, and a heartbroken family were left to try to begin to pick up the pieces. The legal battle to bring Shaw and Evans to justice was lengthy, with both killers being tried separately and both claiming that their constitutional rights had been violated because the guard had held them without charge longer than the 48 hours allowed under the Offences Against the State Act. It took a Supreme Court decision to rule that the right to life takes precedence over the right to liberty. The court held that as the Garda believed there was a possibility that at the time Shaw and Evans were being interrogated that Mary Duffy could still be alive, they had an obligation to do whatever they could to find her, even if that meant holding the suspects for longer than the permitted period. On the back of this decision, a jury found Shaw guilty, and on the 9th of February 1978, John Shaw was told to stand to hear his fate. He leaned forward in the dock and smiled a smile that soon faded when Mr Justice Costello imposed a sentence of life imprisonment for the murders of Elizabeth Plunkett and Mary Duffy. Shaw also received a sentence of 14 years for rape and two years for false imprisonment. Ten months later it was the turn of Geoffrey Evans, who was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of Mary Duffy and 20 years for the rape of Elizabeth Plunkett and Mary Duffy. Earlier in the trial, following legal submissions, Evans had been found not guilty of the murder of Elizabeth Plunkett by direction of the judge. Both men were to appeal their conviction a number of times, but all subsequent appeals were turned down over the following years. Over time, Shaw and Evans became the state's longest-serving prisoners, and at age 64, Evans underwent a heart bypass operation at Dublin's Mater Hospital on Christmas Eve 2008. Although the operation was considered to be a success, Evans had a massive stroke the following day. He fell into a coma and was never to regain consciousness. He was on ventilation, unresponsive and entirely dependent on others following the stroke, and was to remain in the Mater under round-the-clock guard by two prison officers at an annual state cost of €900,000 until June 2010, when he was then granted temporary release after being medically declared in a vegetative state and was electronically tagged. A senior prison officer visited him fortnightly until he was transferred to St Mary's Hospital in Dublin's Phoenix Park in April 2011. Evans was to remain here for more than a year, never once regaining consciousness until he died on May the 20th, 2012. Evans had had several chest and urinary tract infections in the months before he died, and a subsequent post-mortem found cause of death to be as a result of sepsis due to hospital-acquired pneumonia. He was mourned by absolutely no one, having lost contact with his family in the UK many years before while serving his time in prison. And retired detective guarder Jerry O'Connell perhaps best summed up feeling when two days later he was quoted on the Irish Radio Liveline programme as saying about Evans's death, I have mixed feelings this morning. I can't find it in my heart to have any pity or remorse. The air is a little cleaner for him having passed away. Jerry, I can't tell you just how much I agree with you there. I really, really can't. And what of Shaw? Well, by 2003, it was reported that Shaw was possibly being prepared for release. After serving 25 years in Dublin's maximum security Arbor Hill Prison, Shaw was moved to Castlereagh Open Prison in County Roscommon. A source at the time said, With the transfer to Castlereagh from Arbor Hill, it looks like he's on the road to freedom. He's guilty of some despicable crimes, but he and Jeffrey Evans are the longest serving prisoners in the state. It will be a completely different regime there. Arbor Hill is one of the more closed jails, in total contrast to the setup at Castlereagh. Usually if a prisoner gets moved to Castlereagh, he can hope to get released before too long. 
Family members of Mary Duffy expressed horror and anger when they heard this news, stating that they were still heartbroken to that day and would fight any possible release of either man. Well-placed prison sources told that Shaw had not changed in the slightest since his incarceration and had never once showed any remorse for his crimes. One source said, He is a nasty piece of work who should never be allowed out. If he were to be released tomorrow, he would most certainly kill again. Thankfully he wasn't released, however, and he remains in prison to this day. He's now one of Ireland's longest-serving prisoners, and just last year he was in the headlines with the report that he was attempting to sue the state in a bid for a release. In a high court action, Shaw claimed that he's been a model prisoner since he was first taken into custody in 1976, and that he is hopeless, distressed and frustrated, because no justice minister since 1990 has agreed to grant him any concessions, even a day out to go shopping for his good behaviour. He now wants Justice Minister Charlie Flanagan to provide detailed reasons as to why he's not been released, at least temporarily, at any point in the past four decades. Shaw's solicitor David Tarrant says, Shaw has now been locked up for some 15,000 days. With his health declining, he feels he's earned at least a day out to go shopping or something like that. He just wants to know that there's life at the end of a dark tunnel. He wants to die a free man. Shaw was even quoted as attempting to claim that his killing of Mary was, I quote, as humane as possible. Unbelievable, yeah? Well, I'll get on to my thoughts about that shortly. As of recording this episode, Shaw remains incarcerated in Dublin's Arbor Hill prison, long since forgotten about by his family back in England, disowned most likely for the carnage that he caused. I could only hope that with any decision that's made about his possible release that the powers that be bear in mind this quote from one of the detectives who arrested Shaw and Evans and who helped secure their conviction. Evans was the more intelligent of the two. Shaw was the muscle, but it was Evans that set the plan in motion. Shaw strangled the two victims on Evans' instructions. It was absolutely horrific the way they left Mary Duffy tied to a tree. I remember the details of the case at the time affected us all and left us sickened. A lot of people don't know how close they came to killing again. They'd been driving around looking for their next victim when they were caught. And if that still doesn't sway it, then think back to a statement that I said earlier in the episode. How about what Shaw said to Detective Garda Jerry O'Connell when the pair were in the back of the squad car on the way to take Shaw to Mountjoy Prison on remand. Shaw had said, I'm glad that you caught me. We were going to kill one woman a week. Where is a place at liberty for a creature such as that? Can you imagine if they'd been at large to continue acts of depravity such as what we've described in the episode once a week? No, Shaw is undoubtedly where he belongs. He deserves to live in fear and misery each day that passes with none of the mercy given to him that he ever showed to Elizabeth or Mary or any of the people affected by his crimes. I sincerely, sincerely hope that John Shaw remains in prison until he's carried out in a box because he deserves so much worse than spending the rest of his days locked away. As you can probably tell, I found this a sickening case, and as with all of the cases featured on the show, I know it's a horrific one. But Shaw and Evans, I found particularly two of the most evil characters I've ever researched for the show. I know it's a question we often ask here, but what kind of mindset an evil commits atrocities such as these? The cold-heartedness and planning that was involved. The lengths that they went to try to ensure that they were left at liberty to commit this awful pact and challenge that they'd set each other. And the despicable multiple rapes and beatings and finally horrific murder and disposal of these two women. Two families destroyed by the loss of a loved one, a daughter, a sibling. And also two evil, evil pieces of scum can get the sick kicks. Yeah, one of them's dead now and the two families can take comfort that he's no more, but he had a peaceful death, a polar opposite from the one that he inflicted upon Elizabeth and Mary. And the other one, 
He has the nerve to bleat on about not being allowed out shopping, even though he has served 40 years. Well, how about the two women you killed, who would have used 40 years to make families, perhaps even be grandparents by now, and killing Mary as humanely as possible? Sorry, there aren't even words to comprehend that, are there? Rot in hell, sure, you absolute piece of filth. Do you guys agree? Should Shaw remain incarcerated until his death? Overall, please remember Elizabeth, Mary and all of their families and loved ones and not the two monsters who took them from this world. You know where to voice your opinions by now about the episode? In the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Facebook discussion group where the specific thread about this episode is. I'd like to draw your attention to the links in the show notes for further reading about the case as well as to the documentary that involves interviews with retired Garda involved in the hunt and arrest, as well as archive footage from the investigation. It does make disturbing but compelling viewing. Please get in touch if you wish to talk about this one or past episodes of the show, or if you have any suggestions for a case for a future episode also. My social media links are all there. It's always the true crime enthusiast or a slight variant on that to find me. Hope that you found the episode informative and compelling. As I say often, I know this was a particularly harrowing one, but try and find me a nice crime because they sadly don't exist, do they? Not at all. I do hope to hear your thoughts concerning the terrible crimes of John Shaw and Jeffrey Evans though, and I'll be back next week with another episode that I hope you guys can join me for. So until then, I've been and still am Paul, the true crime enthusiast, Wishing you guys all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you soon. Take care, folks. Thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.